There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Many people listening to this podcast are probably aware of the famous Ellis Island in the state of New York. The symbolic and literal entry point for so many immigrants into the United States, overshadowed, of course, by the Statue of Liberty. Nearly 12 million immigrants arrived at this point from the late 19th century to the mid-20th century. But on a smaller scale, Canada has its own version of this, Pier 21 in Halifax, Nova Scotia a point of arrival for thousands of new immigrants to Canada, many of whom were fleeing troublesome home countries of their own. Pier 21 lasted for nearly five decades, but was a key arrival point during two key waves of immigration into this country and stands as a monument both to this country's infrastructure, but also to its cultural makeup. This is Season 7, Episode 2, Welcome, Welcome, A History of Halifax's Pier 21. Today's book recommendation was published in 2020 by the University of Ottawa Press. It is titled Pier 21, A History, by authors Stephen Schwinghammer and Jan Raska. This is an excellent historical account of Pier 21. It covers the infrastructure, the economics, the politics, and then even dives into the individual stories of the varieties of people that arrived at this very important arrival point. Now, the origins of Pier 21 are, surprisingly, tied up in the history of Canada's transportation infrastructure. The creation of the first immigration shed in Halifax followed shortly after the completion of the first inland rail link between Halifax and Montreal in the late 1870s. 
Because of this link, Halifax was now not only an arrival point, but also a viable departure point for both passengers and cargo into the rest of the country. As Halifax grew during the last quarter of the 19th century, the north end of the city developed in such a way as to include an expanding rail depot, which also included a number of associated piers meant to handle both cargo and passengers for said rail. This was known as the Deep Water Terminus. Pier 2, specifically, was the primary service pier for arriving passengers in the Deepwater Terminus all the way up to 1928, when Pier 21 actually opened. What made Pier 2 so viable was that it was directly connected to the Intercolonial Railway Line, the ICR, so passengers and luggage could be quickly and efficiently handled upon arrival on Canada's shores. The problem with Pier 2 was that while it was linked to an important rail line, its facilities were not adequate for handling the growing number of arrivals. There was a large immigration shed, it had a waiting area and washrooms, and a space to handle baggage and ticketing, but it was simply too small. Problems were enhanced in winter when passenger traffic actually increased and many new arrivals found themselves having to wait for hours outside of the shed in the middle of a Halifax winter. It's no surprise, then, that during the end of the 19th century, municipal, provincial, and federal officials began to call for the construction of a more dedicated immigration arrival facility. Now, one of the key figures in this call was a man named John Lowe, who, in 1888, was appointed Deputy Minister of Agriculture under the John A. Macdonald administration. Now, at this time, this portfolio also included responsibilities over immigration. And this was, in fact, a testament to the idea that the federal government saw immigration in heavily agrarian terms. New arrivals were intended to be shipped out west to begin farming and living on much of the prairies, land only recently stolen from First Nations previously occupying it. Lowe worked closely with the ICR to develop a new immigration facility, which included a much larger shed, as well as a working kitchen, dining room, and even sleeping accommodations, and this new facility opened in 1890. While all of this certainly improved the conditions upon arrival for many immigrants, serious issues remained. This included a fairly inefficient immigration screening process, a raised walkway from the shed to the immigration building, which not infrequently saw passengers fall off and hurt themselves, and finally, the new and improved shed itself was poorly constructed, and within only a few years, began to fall apart. Fate would step in, though, when a series of fires broke out in 1895 and destroyed much of the deep water terminus. In the aftermath of this, larger and more improved immigration facilities were constructed at Pier 2, but once again, they were poorly built. Adding to this, the new immigration building was built on a different part of the wharf, 
one that was very difficult for the new larger ocean liners of the day to dock at, meaning many arrivals had to actually get off at Pier 3 and found themselves crossing railroad tracks to get to the immigration building. Thus, the handling of many of these new arrivals became much more difficult and many simply wandered off into the city to begin their lives in Canada without ever even officially checking in through immigration. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From 1905 until 1915, the Pier 2 immigration facilities underwent extensive renovations, and by 1915, the new Pier 2, as it was called, was completely finished. It was much more efficient. It could handle newly arrived people on the first floor with accommodations on the second and was big enough to handle two ships' worth of passengers at a time. It even had offices for various government representatives, including a U.S. immigration officer, and even for the Salvation Army and other church agencies. Though, of course, this was 1915, and Canada was in the midst of a world war. Thus, almost immediately upon its opening, this facility was appropriated by the military for wartime use. However, even in the midst of the war, there was a growing realization that an entirely new peer complex devoted to immigration was needed. Not just continual upgrades, but an entire new facility on an entire new pier, one that would be built along the same lines as the new Pier 2, but even larger. The site chosen was Pier 21 in South End Halifax. The choosing of this site was widely publicized, and even Prime Minister Robert Borden attended the ceremonial start of construction. The plan for Pier 21 was an artificial seawall about 2,000 feet long, several new piers, and a larger complex of freight and passenger and government sheds. It was also going to be built on land reclaimed from the ocean and even involved the destruction of an entire Halifax neighborhood. Despite the focus of the nation's resources on carrying out the war, construction on Pier 21 began, yet things did not continue smoothly. There were natural speed bumps along the way, of course. For instance, the foundation for the project was on uneven bedrock, and this threatened its stability. In fact, in late 1916, a crane actually toppled over into the water, killing one worker. At the same time, these cranes were often diverted to assist in moving artillery pieces onto and off of military vessels, and this obviously slowed down construction. As well, the high traffic volume as a result of incoming and outgoing military vessels, often interfered with construction efforts. Yet, in a tragic twist of fate, 
the Pier 21 site became even more important when the Halifax explosion of December 1917 damaged much of the north end, including Pier 2, putting further strain on the south end piers to accommodate continued traffic. Though it is worth pointing out very quickly to our listeners that Pier 2 was up and running within about two weeks after the deadly blast. Now, by this point in the war, another problem afflicting Pier 21 construction was a lack of workers. You see, potential labor was getting harder and harder to find because all of these new workers or potential workers were continually being poached into other projects that offered better pay. One of the answers to this was internees. And about 100 workers on the Pier 21 complex were pulled from a prisoner of war camp in Amherst, Nova Scotia. Now, by 1919, construction on the site had slowed down considerably. And in fact, at one point, construction simply stopped. Part of the major problem was that Canada went into a brutal economic recession following the war, and much of the country entered a severe economic slowdown, and Halifax was no exception. In fact, by 1924, traffic in Halifax, both in terms of people and goods, had slowed quite considerably, and many government officials felt that Pier 21, starving of funds and lacking any real leadership, was simply going to be abandoned. Despite Halifax suffering fairly heavily by the early to mid-1920s as a result of the country's economic downturn, there was pressure by many in the province and the city to get the federal government to commit to completing Pier 21 as a kind of economic shot in the arm for the beleaguered province. As part of this push, the recession of the early 1920s gave rise to a maritime rights movement, an organization which sought to advocate for greater economic rights for the Maritimes, especially in the face of a central Canada that was seeming to bounce back economically while the Maritimes continued to suffer. In fact, a 1925 Royal Commission recommended that the federal government commit to the completion of Pier 21, and the federal government listened. In cooperation with the Canadian National Railway, which had taken over South End responsibility from the ICR years before, money and expertise were once again focused on the Pier 21 facility. In 1926, the immigration facilities were moved from Pier 2 to Pier 21, and on the 8th of March, 1928, Pier 21 officially opened. Now, the first vessel to dock at Pier 21 was SS New Amsterdam, and 51 immigrants walked off the vessel to start their new lives in Canada. By the end of that year, the newly created Halifax Port Authority took over responsibility for much of the waterfront from the CNR. And in each of the first two years of Pier 21's existence, 44,000 immigrants entered Canada, though this began to slow by the 1930s when the Great Depression hit much of the industrialized world. 
1933, for instance, only 1,450 new arrivals entered Canada through Pier 21. Now, part of this was also due to the fact that the Canadian government began to restrict immigration as the Depression unfolded. This was meant to be a way to curb unemployment and, of course, limit the amount of people arriving that may end up on some form of government relief. In fact, immigration restrictions became so tight that at one point, only American citizens and British subjects from the Dominions, as well as Ireland, with sufficient means to live, were the only ones being allowed in the country. This was a stark contrast to the turn of the century when almost all white Europeans were being allowed into the country. As one can imagine, this meant that arriving numbers at Pier 21 continued to remain low for much of the 1930s. Now, the Second World War, for obvious reasons, saw a further decrease in arrivals at Pier 21, though Halifax did once again become a booming military port, and many of the terminals were converted to wartime use. In March of 1944, a fire swept through Pier 21, causing about a quarter million dollars worth in damage. But rebuilding commenced almost immediately, and Pier 21 was fully rebuilt by December 1946, and its interior was even expanded and improved. The completion of this rebuild coincided with the beginning of the busiest years in Pier 21's existence. Throughout the 1950s, 45,000 immigrants arrived every year. This included British war brides, Polish expats, Hungarians, other Eastern Europeans fleeing the USSR, and significant numbers of Germans, Italians, and Dutch. By the time the Cold War was raging in full, fears over communist agents meant that the detention centers were becoming more and more used as new arrivals were vetted by immigration officials. Some of these new arrivals had no paperwork. Some of them were simply stowaways fleeing communist Europe. By the 1960s, Pier 21 even started to process larger numbers of Cubans who were fleeing their home country after Fidel Castro's successful coup in 1959. In the late 1960s, increasing numbers of Czechs and Slovaks began arriving, especially after the Prague Spring was crushed so ruthlessly by the Warsaw Pact forces. Nonetheless, overall arrival numbers began to decline by the 1960s, while continual repairs and upgrades on Pier 21 started to take a financial toll on the Department of Citizenship and Immigration, which was now responsible for Pier 21's operations. It was the emergence of more affordable and accessible air travel which really spelled the end of Pier 21. More and more people were arriving by air. As an example, in 1970, Pier 21 processed 2,281 passengers arriving. Halifax Airport, only just recently opened, processed over 50,000 arrivals. Thus, the writing was on the wall. And in late March 1971, it was announced that Pier 21 would officially shut its doors. In just over four decades... 
Pier 21 had been the arrival point for nearly one million people and became a key piece of infrastructure which stood as both a literal and metaphorical symbol of a dynamic and tumultuous period in Canadian history and a key point in the developing cultural mosaic that makes up the very fabric of this country today. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.